If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, You are welcome here. Will you bow your heads with me? We've been told there are magic words to pray to you, Holy One, which will allow us, to borrow a phrase from the psalmist, to dwell on your holy hill. Some say there is a list of beliefs and professions that grant us access to a divine storage unit in the sky, in the great by and by. And yet, that's not what the psalmist says about it in their conversation with you. According to them, it's dependent on how we treat one another, those who walk blamelessly and do what is right and speak the truth from their heart, who do not slander with their tongue and do no evil to their friends, nor take up a reproach against their neighbors, in whose eyes the wicked are despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord, who stand by their oath, even to their hurt, who do not lend money at interest and do not take a bribe against the innocent. Those who do these things shall never be moved. Perhaps this is what Jesus meant when he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of God who is in heaven. Help us, Holy One, to take the psalmist's advice. Tell the truth. Be generous. Have patience. Hate what is evil. Love what is good work for the good of the community, and refuse to be anything but just. Perhaps if we worry about tending our part of the garden, heaven will take care of itself. We pray in the name of Jesus, who taught us that they will know us by our love. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. All right, after a two-week stint in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we are back in the Gospels. Thank God. (laughs) The text we read today is what many consider to be Jesus' first public act in the book of Matthew. The Gospels say it was something else. It's not that they're ganging up on Matthew or saying he was wrong. Each of them have a different story about how Jesus began his public ministry. Each of the Gospels has their own agenda, a word that usually has a negative connotation, but it isn't always appropriate. An agenda is a a plan of things to be done or problems to be addressed. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each had some particular point they wanted to drive home to their original audience, and they chose their stories accordingly. In the Gospel of Mark, which was written first in time but placed second in the New Testament's table of contents, Jesus casts out an unclean spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth and preaches a sermon, which is not well received. They try to throw him off of a cliff, but Jesus is a slippery little sucker. Or, as the text says, but he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' first act of public ministry happens at the wedding at Cana. Water into wine, you know that story. Those particular stories reveal particularities about their respective Gospels, tell us something about what the author wanted us to know about who Jesus was and the importance of his work and ministry. And here we have Matthew, who has Jesus deliver what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon to which Matthew gives such a place of distinction and highlights Jesus as teacher includes some of the most well-known passages of scripture. After the Beatitudes, which we read, then come the lines about being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Jesus turns up the heat significantly after those verses, letting loose on repentance and reconciliation, divorce and adultery, and lying, which don't seem to get as much attention as the queer agenda. 
He doesn't mention it at all, this whole Sermon on the Mount. Anyway, after that, Jesus is really on a roll. So next we hear about not returning violence for violence, going the extra mile and giving our coat and our cloak coat. Then come what most of us consider the most challenging teaching. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Even after those lines, the Sermon on the Mount actually goes on for two more full chapters. It takes up all of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, which is to say that no one beat the Baptist to brunch that day. We will get to those other verses in the coming weeks, but today's scripture is the Beatitudes, thusly named because of the repetition of the word, blessed are, blessed are. And I don't know if it's all Christians, but American Christians really love this word, blessed. I mean, we take out that extra syllable, of course, and just leave it as blessed. We hashtag it, and we buy shirts that declare it. Hobby Lobby has bedazzled it into home decor. (laughs) We use it as a caption, but only for photos where everyone is looking at the camera, taken at a good angle, bright and shiny, no one fighting. I mean, no one uses the caption, blessed, with a photo of themselves trying to peel their mid-meltdown toddler off the floor of the grocery store. (laughs) This is, of course, because being blessed is associated with being happy. Happiness, writes theologian Amy Oden, has become a science in recent decades. Neurochemistry, brain studies, and the ever-present consumer sciences have tried to describe and prescribe a sort of anatomy of happiness. It may be at this point that you're wondering if this is going to be one of those anti-happy sermons. It is not. Wanting to be happy, trying to be happy, working on being happy, good on ya. I just don't think scripture is really all that interested in personal, individual happiness. It, it doesn't mean that it isn't a worthwhile or important endeavor. I'm just not convinced that using scripture as a guide to personal happiness is the best use of this collection of writings. And ultimately, I am persuaded that the gospel is only personally salvific when it is socially redemptive. We are hard-pressed to find Jesus speak about personal happiness for himself or for anyone else. Instead, he seems rather obsessed with systems, empires, kingdoms. In particular, he is obsessed with announcing the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, he says, has come near in a passage just before the one we read today. He then starts calling the disciples, two sets of brother, Peter and Andrew, and James and John to start. The others don't come along until later. One could argue that Jesus' public ministry started not with the sermon in chapter 5, but at the end of chapter 4, when the text says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. There it is again, the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, as opposed to the kingdom of Caesar, the kingdom of Rome, of course. 
And it seems to me that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes especially, come from what Jesus has experienced and knows must change because of his time spent among the people. It seems to me that Jesus got tired of watching, tired of watching the status quo, tired of watching the grief, tired of watching the hopelessness, tired of watching violence and oppression and despair. So he gathers the disciples. You might have noticed that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, so this is not exactly a public speech. He is preaching to a small group, just those four disciples at this point. And first, he described the people who needed the most help, the poor in spirit, the plaintive, the powerless, those who pine for justice. These first four Beatitudes critique the political, economic, social, religious, and personal distress that results from the powerful elite who enrich their own position at the expense of the rest. They delineate the terrible consequences of Roman power, power that crushes hope, making people poor in spirit, causes people deep grief, and for them to be plaintive. Power that rules with oppression and hoards it for itself, and power that denies justice, making people search for righteousness and justice. And then with the next four Beatitudes, Jesus describes four human actions and how they embody God's transforming reign, how the kingdom of heaven, in fact, comes near. Mercy, integrity, or purity of heart, and peacemaking. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the the rest of chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, then described the distinctive identity and practices of people who want to turn empire upside down. Jesus planned the work, and then he asks the disciples to work the plan. No more watching, only doing. There has been a debate this week over whether or not people should watch the body and pole camera footage of Memphis police officers beating Tyree Nichols. The hope in getting people to watch the video, writes A.O. Scott, is that concerned Americans will become witnesses after the fact, our senses shocked and our consciousness awakened by the sight of uniformed officers repeatedly kicking and punching Mr. Nichols, who would die from his injuries three days later. I expect you to feel what the Nichols family feels, Sarah Davis, the Memphis police chief said in anticipation of the video's impact. Her appeal to common humanity expressed faith in the power of even the most horrific images to foster empathy and community, and faith in the human capacity to experience outrage and compassion when shown such images. That faith provides a strong argument for the importance of watching. To turn away in circumstances like this would not merely be to succumb to a loss of nerve, but to a loss, a risk of a loss of heart. 
in insisting that the world see what had been done to her son, Ravon Wells, Mr. Nichols' mother, recalled Mamie Till Mobley, who in 1955 placed the disfigured body of her murdered son Emmett in an open coffin so that the viciousness of the racist who killed him could not be denied. A delicate ethical line separates witness, an active, morally engaged state of attention, from the more passive, less demanding condition of spectatorship of watching. The spectacle of violence has a way of turning even sensitive souls into gawkers. Violence, very much including the actions of the police, is a fixture of popular culture and has been since long before the invention of video. For much of human history, public executions have been a form of entertainment, including Jesus's execution. The history of lynching in the United States is in part a history of public spectacle in which the mutilation and murder of black men brought out white crowds to stare, cheer, and even take photographs. All of which is to say, we've seen this before, not just Emmett Till. As so many have pointed out, Mr. Nichols' case can't help but recall the police beating of Rodney King in Los Angeles in 1991, captured on video by a neighbor. As it would turn out, that was just the beginning the number of video recordings we have of police violence against black people are more than can be listed and read in this sermon. These videos have rightly brought attention to the need for change in policing practices. The George Floyd Justice in Policing Act seeks to mandate the use of dashboard and body cameras for federal law enforcement and requires state and local law enforcement to use federal funds to purchase police body cameras. We surely need to encourage Congress to pass this legislation. But that cannot be the only thing we work on after watching the footage. In the Memphis videos, what is perhaps most heartbreaking and most chilling, Scott writes, is the casual different indifference of the officers to Mr. Nichols' anguish and to the cameras that recorded it. In the poll camera video, which is the longest of the four segments and has no sound, you see Mr. Nichols crumpled against the side of a patrol car and collapsing into the ground as his assailants and an ever-increasing number of their colleagues mill around, mostly ignoring him. Someone lights a cigarette. Someone fiddles with a clipboard. Because of the silence of the soundtrack and the immobility of the camera, time seems to slow down and action mutates into abstraction. A human catastrophe is playing out under a ruthlessly impersonal eye looking down from above. All of this begs this question. Are we tired of watching? Are we tired of watching yet? 
Are we tired of watching in the same way that Jesus and the disciples seemed to be tired of watching? Are we tired enough to do something different? Tired enough to stop watching and start working? Are we tired enough to vote in ways that say we are tired of watching? Are we demanding a city budget that says we are tired of watching police violence against our black siblings? The plan for the work today is twofold. First, East 6th Street Christian Church is hosting a vigil for Tyree Nichols this afternoon at four o'clock. Shortly after, there's a community meeting at Tower Theater from five to seven to allow the community an opportunity to express our exhaustion to senior most leadership of metro area law enforcement agencies. Those are the two places where we will learn the plan for the rest of the work. Then we will need to work the plan. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near, but we have to work the plan. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.